Jewish views on Shimon Peres as the former Israeli Prime Minister and President dies aged 93, we look back at his life and work. Sharai Tzedek Hospital, we find out about one of Israel's most famous medical institutions, and Tzedek tell us why they plan to put a sukkah in the city. First, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. Shimon Peres, who served twice as Israel's Prime Minister and once as President, died earlier this week in a hospital near Tel Aviv. He was 93. His body lay in state at the Knesset, where former US President Bill Clinton was one of those paying his respects. Shimon Peres was the last survivor of the political generation which established the State of Israel in 1948. He won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1994 for his role negotiating the Oslo Peace Accords with the Palestinians, a prize he shared with Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, who was later assassinated, and the Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat. His son Chemi led tributes to one of the founding fathers of the State of Israel, who worked tirelessly for it. The Jewish labour movement has expressed dismay that its proposed rule change to tackle anti-Semitism hasn't been debated at this year's party conference and said that having to wait another 12 months to have the proposals heard was a letdown. Mike Katz, the organisation's vice chair, gave a speech at the conference saying everyone in the Labour Party needs to redouble efforts against anti-Semitism, racism and misogyny. Four Danish citizens who were accused of assisting the gunman Omar El Hussein in two deadly attacks in Copenhagen last year have been acquitted. One of the attacks was outside a synagogue. A 37-year-old Jewish security guard was killed. The total population of Israel has risen to 8.5 million this year. The country's Jewish citizens, which are three-quarters of the total, stand at 6.4 million, while the Arab population is 1.7 million. There were 25,000 new immigrants this year. And finally, the Jewish star of the ITV courtroom reality show, Judge Rinder, has lit up the internet after his cha-cha-cha on Strictly Come Dancing got 300,000 hits on YouTube. Robert Rinder, who in real life is a criminal barrister, got a bigger reaction than his fellow Jewish contestant, the model Daisy Lowe, even though she topped the leaderboard. That's the news. The sport is with Andrew. Thanks, Viv. Three teams maintained their 100% winning starts to the Maccabi League football seasons at the weekend. After Hendon A, North London Raiders B and Catford and Bromley all made it three wins from three at the top of their respective divisions. There was also a first win of the season for reigning Premier Division champions Raiders A, while Raiders C were the day's top scorers, putting nine goals past Boca Juniors. The top clash on Sunday sees the top two in Division 2 meet as RCUK FC travel to Catford. Israel has qualified for next year's World Baseball Classic tournament for the first time in their history. Beating GB 9-1 in last weekend's final, the tournament takes place in South Korea next March. And finally, a reminder that next Thursday, 6th of October, Action Against Discrimination are holding a panel on anti-Semitism in football, entitled How Serious Is It Now? Find out more details about the event on page 41 of this week's Jewish News. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at www.jewishnews.co.uk. 
Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this week's edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look at this week's rather splendid new look edition of The Jewish News. Joining me to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and foreign editor Stephen Oreschuk. Welcome to you both. Richard, we're not even going to talk about the front page splash, as you call it, first, because we're going to talk about a very shiny new look for the Jewish news. Indeed. Hopefully some of our listeners would already have seen it, because if you go down to the shops today, you're in for a big surprise. We have got a gleaming new product for our readers, the brand new Jewish news. It's the first time it's had a front-to-back relaunch for more than 10 years. And when I say relaunch, I mean root and branch. We have changed everything. We've changed the, the, the sections, the running order, the fonts, the way we handle our stories, the way we present the stories, the journalists that we're publishing, the, the opinion writers that we've got. As we approach our thousandth edition, the start of next year and our 20th anniversary, it's a great opportunity, I think, to reinvent the paper for a younger, more uh, dynamic, perhaps more online audience, but long live print journalism, because hopefully this newspaper and our readers will agree, shows how dynamic and, and vibrant and eye-catching print journalism can still be at a time when so many are kind of ringing the death knell for it. So this might be a bit of a shock to some people because obviously up until last week we didn't really know much about the relaunch if anything because it was teased should we say on the very back page of last week's edition but other than that I don't think anyone knew that such a relaunch was coming. What urged you guys to do it now? What inspired you to do it this week of all weeks? Well, it hasn't just been this week. We've been sitting down for the best part of six months now, as I said, going through every single section, figuring out what works, what doesn't work, throwing out a lot of the things that we thought were a little bit out of date, outmoded, perhaps not reflecting the community as much as it perhaps should do. One of the things that really kind of confirmed in my mind what I think the Jewish community wants out of a newspaper was something I actually found hours after it came out. I went on the street with my colleagues, handing out the paper, showing them the paper, getting a sense of what the reaction was on the street and I think the Jewish community wants a community newspaper it wants a a paper that's at the grassroots that reflects the organizations the individuals the people that make the community tick and celebrates them and hopefully the relaunch has packaged everything in a way that really celebrates the community we've got much more stories bigger use of pictures and headlines a whole new seven page community section that really celebrates all that's good about British Jewry And it's been designed in a very cutting-edge way. We hired a a freelance print designer, someone who was behind the Financial Times' redesign, somebody who really is at the top of his game when it comes to print journalism, and packaged something I think, and I hope our listeners will agree, is something that people want to actively seek out every week. And it's, it's certainly a product I'm very proud of. We've done every possible change in the book. We've even changed our masthead. We've turned it from the old-fashioned blue to a a bright silver and red, which might strike some people as a a little bit strange, but hopefully you'll start to enjoy that and feel it's a more sort of gleaming and eye-catching way for people to be attracted to the product. Very, very keen to hear people's views and thoughts and feedback, and I'll certainly feed them back to the designers, and, and perhaps we can even change things in the weeks to come. But yeah, brand new product, really excited to to show it to our readers. And Stephen, Rich was just saying about how it's going to change the way that you guys as journalists bring the stories to the readers. How has your workload been impacted by this change? What is different? Do you notice anything different yourself? 
There's a lot more white space in the newspaper, which is great because I think sometimes if you picked up a Jewish news, occasionally it could be a slab of text, just a, a wall of words would hit you. And so the designers have given a bit more white space, a bit more space to breathe, as it were, more photos and actually less words. So as a journalist, my my job is made slightly more difficult now because it was always always difficult to work out what not to put in the newspaper what which bit to leave out and i have to leave out even more now so yeah there's always a pressure that's a good point of making sure you cram everything you possibly can into a weekly product because we run so many stories online that it's difficult sometimes to squeeze everything in so we've lowered the word count we've upped the story count we've upped the page numbers and we've given it i think a more creative and dynamic feel because of that so the whole pace and the style of the product i think has changed and and all these changes have been just done for one reason and that's to improve the reading experience for the people that pick it up so hopefully we've succeeded in that well let's carry on with the listening experience shall we and review the brand new look jewish news and on the front page there really of course is only one person who could be on the front cover this week mr israel as you've called him shimon perez true Israeli statesman linked to the past. It's all been said already. Our job this week was to try to bring out the British links with Shimon Peres, and he's had a bit of a mixed history with the British, given that he was arrested by them in the 40s. Some interesting thoughts from David Horowitz. I'm sure you'll be hearing a lot more about Peres, his life, and, and what he did later in the show. Right now, as we make this program, we're looking ahead for the funeral. And a discussion in the office just before you turned up was what might come out of this funeral? If you think back to Mandela's funeral, we had Obama meeting with Castro's brother, Raul, and subsequently there was a thaw in relations and reconciliation. So there would be a lovely thought to end the week. The idea that Perez was still making peace in death if a bass comes along and conversations start to happen and things start to move along where by four years they may have been stalled that's a nice way to to think about his exit you see the thing is though rich that there are going to be some people listening to this that say can we actually make that comparison could you possibly say you talk about mandela's funeral versus perez's funeral do you think there are comparisons to draw well, obviously, Mandela made a tangible difference in terms of ending the apartheid regime and heralding in a new era for two disparate people in one country. Perez hasn't lived to see that happen. What Perez's legacy is, is the last founding father of, of the Jewish state. Here is a man who was instrumental in the Ben-Gurion government. Let's face it, he was born, he was what, 25 when the Israeli state was born? This is a man who has held every post in government, was the oldest ever president. He was the lifeblood of the Israeli nation. He was, as we have put on the front page this week, he was Mr. Israel. And I don't think his importance can be overstated. And this is certainly the end of an era. And I think Stephen's right. Mahmoud Abbas and a PA delegation, were. it was suggested, were going to, attend the funeral how often do these people share the same space actually talk face to face 
rather than just talk at each other through the media. It's very important that these people do share the same space and perhaps communicate. And who knows, you, you, you might be right that if, if Abbas and Netanyahu and Obama are actually eye to eye in the same room at an event in honor of somebody who was conciliatory and spent his life in search of this, this peace that has, has eluded him in his 93 years, then perhaps, yeah, his legacy might still yet to be written. Well, let's see what happens. Now, the colour red on the logo is not the only thing that is red within the paper because Labour Party conference is also in the paper this week. And obviously it took place. And we now know that Jeremy Corbyn is the new old leader of the party. Any major shock there? Yes, as Stephen wrote in, in The Leader this week, the Jewish year began with <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn becoming leader of the Labour Party and it ended with Jeremy Corbyn becoming leader of the Labour Party. Justin Cohen, our, our, um, news, our intrepid news uh, editor, has been in Liverpool all week, which is why he's not here for, for the show. So he really would be best qualified to be talking about the Labour conference. But we have done a huge amount of coverage, all sorts of things from Jeremy Corbyn's speech to Labour Friends of Israel. He mentioned the word Israel five times this year which I know is important to some people. So you can officially count it on your left hand. Yeah, well, you did it. He did it. He actually mentioned it. We've got some fantastic opinion pieces from Ruth Smith, the Labour MP who's been the victim of anti-Semitism, Lord Mitchell, who has quit the Labour Party, the peer who said he can no longer be a member under Corbynism. There was a young Israeli delegation from the uh, Israeli Labour Party that were there that met with Tom Watson and others, all sorts of different things. It's very difficult to give an all-encompassing overview of Labour conference and a lot of it's reflected in our website and uh, in our paper this week excellent well there you go that's all we've got time for for this week's review thank you both very much indeed don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the brand new look jewish news every thursday across london or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk as you've been hearing already on the show, Shimon Peres, the former Israeli prime minister and president, died this week, aged 93. Mr. Peres was admitted to hospital a couple of weeks ago following a stroke. But despite doctors' optimism of a recovery, it was announced on Tuesday morning that he was fighting for his life and subsequently lost that fight. To look back at his incredible life and work, I've been speaking to Professor Naomi Khazan. I started by asking Naomi to tell us what made Shimon Peres stand out from the rest. Well, for, uh, Shimon Peres was unique in many respects. He was the longest-serving member of Knesset in Israel's history. He served for, uh, I believe it's 48 years. That's a record, and uh, I don't believe anybody will ever, ever meet that record. So he was a veteran of the Knesset. The Knesset, in many respects, was associated with him. I want to add something very important. For much of his career, he wasn't really a parliamentarian. He was a minister. He was head of opposition. He always served in the Knesset but also did something else in the government. I think he was best known in the period I was in the Knesset. And this was a period when he was first Minister of Foreign Affairs under Rabin, then Prime Minister, then Leader of the Opposition. During this entire period, when we knew he was going to speak 
we went into the plenary and listened. We also knew it would be fascinating and there would be action. Shimon Peres was Shimon Peres. It's fair to say that no one else really matched him, did they? And probably never will, as you've rightly identified. How did he fare, would you say, through his career? Because obviously it wasn't always people with the same views as him in power. So he obviously had to, as you rightly identify, he was obviously leader of opposition as well at one stage. He had to adjust quite a lot, didn't he? And he probably had to adjust more than most other politicians. How did he cope with that? Well, the truth of the matter is that he's a very good politician and he was a very good minister in many different positions. How did he cope with that? He, he basically went along with what he thought was right to do at a certain time. If I may add, I think it's very important. Shimon Peres essentially fulfilled almost every single civilian position in Israel's history during the course of his career. And he made lots of different policies and statements and initiated a series of measures that inevitably made him loved by some and and quite despised by others. The press throughout the world is responding to his death by very nuanced analyses. So if we had to put something in one sentence, which, by the way, is terribly unfair to the complexity and diversity and variety of Perez's actions and activities, I would say that over the years, he has represented everything that is good and mediocre, everything that's brilliant and problematic that has to do with Israeli politics. And I think that's essentially the story of Shimon Peres. So he handled it by just going and doing what he thought was right at certain periods of time. And very clearly, during the last 20 years of his life, his key pursuit, his most important mission in his own eyes, was to achieve the peace that he started with the Oslo process. Well, now that you've mentioned that, what do you think that future politicians, regardless of what side of the fence they are on, could learn from the likes of Shimon Peres? Look, he was a man of vision. I think that nobody will ever be ever to take away from him, even his staunchest opponents. He was a man of vision in the sense that he constantly looked towards the future. It's been said time and time again, but it's absolutely correct. I saw him in action. I spoke with him. What happened happened, but he saw the mission of a public servant to improve and to make tomorrow better than today. And there's something tremendously refreshing very, very important and inherently optimistic about 
the way he thought and how he operated. But he was also a skilled politician, and he knew how to turn the vision into practice, although he didn't always succeed. What's the mood like in Israel at the moment? How has the nation reacted to his passing? Well, different groups have reacted in different ways, but I I would say that uh, Shimon Peres lived long enough that he could enjoy a period of grace because throughout his political career, he was extremely controversial. He suffered immense setbacks. He never really won an election to the prime minister position. And during the seven years he was president of Israel, he succeeded the role of leader and unifier, and he received the love of Israelis for many walks of life as a result. So I would say that even those who didn't agree with him, definitely those who agreed with him, not only feel the loss, but understand deeply that Shimon Peres was a leader of Israel with all its unique achievements and all its many flaws. In other words, he has succeeded, and we feel it today more than ever before, in gaining the respect of the citizens of the state. Apologies for the quality in audio there. Professor Nemi Khazan talking to me about the incredible life and work of the late Shimon Peres, who died this week, aged 93. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by journalists and authors Emma Klein and Jeremy Havadi, and they'll be discussing what you've just been hearing about, the life and work of Shimon Peres. Plus, Diana Toman shall be speaking to Simi Ben-Hur about Sharite Tzedek Hospital in Jerusalem and the incredible work that they do. But first, unless you haven't been paying much attention recently, you will know that the High Holy Days are upon us once more. That means Sukkot is but a couple of weeks away, and the charity Tzedek have decided to mark this with an event entitled Sukkah in the City. Entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton has been finding out more about it for us by speaking to Melody Dodon from Zedek. She started by asking Melody to tell us what exactly the event is all about. It's not like your, let's say, your traditional Sukkot event, what we're doing. It is going to be like based in the city, as the name of the event says. And it's all about storytelling, this event. And it's all about having fun, have a nice glass of wine in a sukkah on the top of the roof of an international law firm called BLP. Ah, close to London Bridge. So there is actually a sukkah. So there is actually a sukkah in the city. Excellent. And you go there to do what? So we are having a special event and it's to celebrate 25 years of Tzedek storytelling. So all the international development work that we're doing overseas and all the work that we do here in the UK to educate the Jewish community to act to reduce extreme poverty worldwide. So when you say storytelling, you mean there is 
actually a story being told? or There is a story being told. Not just about Sedek and Not what you just do. about Sedek. Like we have a special guest, Michael Kuhn, who is a producer of very famous films. You might have seen them. Notting Hill, Fargo. Who hasn't seen those? Train Spotting. Excellent. Which is, All good. Yeah. And he's coming to tell us. <laughs> <laughs> and he's coming to tell a story about what? He's telling us, like, so straight uh, from the glamour and the spotlights of Hollywood, is telling us all the behind the scenes and on set dramas of these films which might be very intriguing and very mm. interesting. And you can sit back, listen to him, and with your nice glass of wine. Is it lunchtime, though, or evening? No, it's in the evening. Oh, we nice. are having an aperitivo-style uh, <laughs> Sukkot event. So there will be, like, plenty of food and drinks. And on top of that, uh, we're going to have also some storytelling straight from Ghana, because we're going to have, like, some music, drums, and dancing from one drum. So you're going to enjoy a nice spectacle as well. It's going to be like we wanted to have like a fun evening to celebrate with our supporters the Chag of Sukkot, but doing it in a more original way by having this uh, producer who is like one of the main supporters of Tzedek telling us all the behind the scenes of these very famous films. Why Ghana? And um, what are you hoping to... Well, you can tell us a little bit about what Tzedek does. And, um, yeah. yeah, with pleasure. So Tzedek is an international development uh, NGO that through uh, unique Jewish lenses trying to reduce uh, extreme poverty worldwide. We work mainly in sub-Saharan Africa and uh, Central India. And is all, we can do this work uh, via the support of the UK Jewish community. So we work with partners regardless race and religion, helping to empower women, giving literacy to kids that can't, uh, don't have the chance like to learn to read and write in uh, Tamale, Northern Ghana. We help drop out school kids uh, to get IT skills. We do all of this so that they become sustainable and so that our help is not in the short run, but in the long run. Is this for Jewish kids or or any kids? No, we work uh, with our benefactors, all mainly non-Jewish, but all the supporters, all the donors, are all the support comes from the UK Jewish community. So we, as a charity, we work, as I said, like regardless of race and religion, where there is a need, we come. And, and we help. We work with refugee women in Malawi to help to empower them and to to learn a skill so that they can become self-sufficient and they can help themselves so they don't need the Western help anymore. So what we do, every kind of overseas project that we do, it needs to be sustainable over the time. So if you help one woman, that woman, so if you give you a pass goat... pass on the baton. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Only and so and we do this in various ways by giving microcredit fund um, loans and teaching skills, uh, uh, giving education to kids, which is without education they won't be able like, to break the cycle of poverty, of course. And this this event, very important, that like what we're doing at the moment is it's a free event as well. Okay, so, so we're you're not, hoping to incre- make people aware, increase awareness, and hopefully they will be yeah. come your your supporters. Yes, yes, in due yes. course. Yeah, so it's a free event. You can get your ticket by visiting Facebook Tzedek page. Very important that I forgot to say is that event is on Wednesday, the nineteenth of October. That's the middle of Sukkot. So it's after the main High Holy Days. It's during the, what yes. people call Cholamoed, the, the yes. middle days. Yes, exactly, exactly. It's at 6.30. 
it starts at 6.30. You can get there later on if you work uh, in, in town or in the city. It's a free event, but it needs it requires a prior booking and the event is selling out uh, quite quickly. Okay. So please like uh, book your tickets, go on Facebook Tarek page. It's very easy. You just click on the Eventbrite link and you get your free ticket. Melody Dadon from Tzedek talking to Kate Fulton there about their forthcoming event, Sukkah in the City. For more information, then you're best to do a search in your preferred search engine for Eventbrite, and Bright is spelt B-R-I-T-E, Sukkah in the City. Eventbrite, Sukkah in the City, and you'll see it come up. In just a moment will be this week's Jewish Schmooze, a reminder that we now live stream the Schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm British Summertime. That all-important address is coming up, but that means that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds. And of course, we'll try and read out those comments as and when we get them. It's just another way you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. Now, as you heard a little earlier on in the show, the Jewish News has launched with a brand new look for this week. Well, if you delve inside your copy, you will notice a very impressive supplement based on Sharai Tzedek Hospital. Anyone who truly knows Israel will recognise the extraordinary contribution the country makes to the global medical industry. And in the heart of Jerusalem lies one of the most incredible institutions – the hospital has been responsible for some of the most phenomenal breakthroughs in modern medicine. Community reporter Diana Toman has been finding out more about it by speaking to Simi Ben-Hur, the executive director of the UK team. And she started by asking Simi to give us a little bit of background about the history of the hospital. Well, the, the hospital started on Old Jaffa Road and it was actually a project of European Jews whose dream was to make a hospital in Jerusalem that anybody could get to regardless of their means to pay or their nationality or their origin. And 114 years later, their dream is the best possible success story I think Israel has at the moment. It's flourishing and we see everybody coming in from all walks of life. And there are miracles happening every day. And it's incredible to look at the pictures of the old Jaffa Road site where it was really very small, humble beginnings. And the ingenuity of Dr. Wallach and his team is something that has followed with every director general following that. So during the war years where we had cows on site so that we had milk for the newborn babies. Which war are we talking about? In the 60s. Right. We had cows on site so that we could feed the babies milk because deliveries weren't coming into Jerusalem when there was a battle over Jerusalem. And it's stories like that that really make the building come alive. And it's much more than just the walls of a hospital, but it's the people in it that make Sharid Sadek so special. So talking about the people in it... We've now got this wonderful supplement which is covering three or four of the principles, if you like, in the medical unit. And could we talk a little bit about them? Let's start with this amazing man who's walked through the door, one of the doctors, on crutches. 
So Dr. Asael Lebetsky is the cover star of the supplement this week and it's an incredible image to see a doctor on crutches and you immediately want to know why. And he was injured in the Second Lebanon War very badly and was fighting for his life. And he's written a book about his experiences being injured, fighting for his life and deciding to then want to become a man that saves other people's lives. And he's now a practicing paediatrician at Shari Tzedek. And what makes him such a special doctor isn't just the tremendous challenges he's overcome to get to where he is today, but the fact that when sick children come into hospital with all their anxiety and their parents' anxiety about their illness, that when they see a doctor who's on crutches or in a wheelchair, they know that he knows their pain and there is this empathy without saying any words that is immediately created that makes his relationship with his patients so special. Of course it must. And then we move on to somebody I suspect is equally eminent, the trauma chief. That makes him sound extremely important. Is he not based at the hospital? Does he go outside the hospital? He is. So Dr. Ofer Marin is the deputy director of Sharid Sedek and he's the head of the trauma unit. So whenever you hear about terror attacks and any kind of trauma incidents like car accidents or anything else, he's leading that team. But he also has a very important responsibility in the IDF running the field hospital. So whenever you hear that Israel has gone overseas to support medically victims of tsunamis and earthquakes and flooding, it's Dr. Marin and his team that go. And he was actually in Nepal last year. Israel sent one of the biggest delegations of any country in the world and Sharad Sedek sent the biggest delegation of any hospital. And that even included the director of the hospital, Professor Halevi. This is after the earthquake? This was after the earthquake. Right. It, yes, there is this wonderful photograph of him sitting in front of a field tent. He's an incredible full man. uniform, yes. He's an incredible man because he is dealing with life and death decisions in seconds. And he takes those decisions in a very cool, calm way. And there's a wonderful film on the Sharid Zedek website of him talking about life in the trauma unit over a 96-hour period during the terror attacks last year at their height. And there are just some amazing stories of miraculous recoveries and tragedy as well. And the way that the team deal with anything that comes through the doors is not just professional, but they have such a connection with their patients long after they stop being patients. And that's what makes Sharid Sedek known as the hospital with a heart. This is aftercare, yeah. yes. Doctors give out their mobile numbers. We had one terror victim years ago who was an American tourist who, when she flew back to America after she'd had life-saving surgery, her surgeon actually flew on the plane with her to Chicago to make sure she was okay. Good heavens. That's incredible. So, Simi, that's the trauma team. Tell me about the head nurse. So the head nurse in the emergency department is an amazing man who you'll see in the supplement is a big statuesque figure and what makes him so interesting is that he is an Arab citizen of Israel who took a huge interest in Holocaust victims 
and took himself off to Auschwitz to learn more about those experiences and was so touched by the people that he met that he is now the only registered Arab tour guide that gives tours on the Holocaust in Israel. And his first tour was for the Jewish and Arab staff at Shari Tzedek. And it just gives you an example of the kinds of people that work at Shari Tzedek. The director general says, you have to be good at medicine. You have to have a good side bedside manner. But if you're not a mensch, you don't get a job there. And it comes across with absolutely everybody that works. I can just see that. Yes, that's that really is incredible. Anything else that you think makes for the success of this fantastic hospital? Well, what's so special is that Sharid Sedek's reputations and successes transcend the walls of the hospital. So the research work that we do, for example, is impacting globally every day. The head of the Genetic Research Institute was on the team that discovered the BRCA1 and 2 breast cancer mutation. And she's now leading very eminent research into the link between BRCA and Alzheimer's as well as breast cancer. And she's led calls around the world for universal screening for Ashkenazi women because of the high prevalence of breast cancer in the community. So we don't just practice medicine for the people in our hospital, but we take responsibility for making sure that people around the world are being looked after carefully as well. Yes, we know that Israel's right up there in the in the vanguard of that. Exactly. Now, Simi, I mean, all these wonderful things that the hospital is doing presumably needs money. How is it funded and is there any way that the UK can help? So the real secret to our success is our supporters around the world. The hospital gets no government funding to pay for equipment, development of the departments or research. And it's been supported for nearly 80 years now by British donors. And we're very grateful for everything that people give every year. And this year has been a very critical year with a rise in terror incidents, with growth in departments. We have a brand new children's hospital and we have a new stroke unit that's just opening now and the decisions we make every day that are saving lives are funded by those donations and we hope that this Rosh Hashanah people will continue to support Shari Tzedek and people that didn't know about us before will read the supplement feel inspired and will support us. And there's a place where they can donate, isn't there, yes. in the supplement? There's a there's a donation form in the supplement and the Sharid Sedek website is sharidsedek.org.uk where people can donate and we're very grateful for everything we receive. Simi Ben-Hur, Executive Director of Sharid Sedek UK, talking to community reporter Diana Toman there about the incredible work the Sharid Sedek Hospital does, not only in Jerusalem, but for the global medical industry. As I say, you can find that incredible supplement in your copy of The Jewish News this week. And do take a look at it. You'll be able to see all photos of all the members of staff that Diana and Simi were just talking about. And you'll be able to read further about their amazing stories. Also, if you would like more information on Sharait Sedek itself, then you can always go to their website, which is sharaitsedek.org.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. Joining Adam Bradley and me today are journalists and authors Emma Klein and Jeremy Havadi. 
The subject today is based on possibly one of the most remarkable Israelis who have ever lived, Shimon Peres. As you would have already heard, former Israeli President and Prime Minister Shimon Peres died this week at the age of 93. We thought it would be a fitting tribute to him to look back at his incredible time in Israeli politics and to ask what can current and future Israeli leaders learn from him. Emma, shall we start with you? How do you think Shimon Peres will best be remembered? Well, it's very interesting how even someone who opposes him like Bibi would have to give a very fair and almost generous tribute to him. So I think he will be remembered by virtually everyone. And even that person in Jewish... I can't remember the... um, even more extreme than the right wing than the Likud, also gave quite a decent tribute. I think he'll be very well remembered. And of course, with Prince Charles going to the funeral and dignitaries from all over the world and Barack Obama saying, my friend, I don't know how many times, I think the future will remember him well. The tragedy, of course, is that his aspirations have not been fulfilled. Perez himself said that he wants to be an optimist, an optimist and a pessimist. You know, they both sure. die, but ultimately he wants to be an optimist. And if one is being optimistic, one could say that his vision of wanting peace and coexistence with all of Israel's neighbours, including the Palestinians, will be realised. Look, I think the first thing to say is that Perez was a great visionary. I think his life encompassed the life of Israel. He was, he came to embody the country, he came to personify it. And he didn't just personify the country's search for peace, but he also, in a way, personified its desire to be a strong and independent mm. nation. He was there at its founding. Mm. He was part of its it help helped to build its defence industries, its nuclear programme. He was, at times, a hawk. He recognised Israel had to be strong and the Jewish nation had to be strong. Absolutely, yeah. But at the same time, he realised that if there was any opportunity whatsoever for peace and for, for goodwill towards Israel's neighbours, that that had to be championed too. And it was, in a way, a very sad thing that his hopes for peace with the Palestinians were ultimately frustrated by the Palestinians, were ultimately frustrated by their rejectionism, the rejectionism of their leaders. Now, to go back to what you said at the start, one can only hope that Perez's vision of Israel being fully at peace with all her neighbours will eventually be realised, and it will be realised when Israel's own mainstream desire for peace is matched by that of her neighbours. That's going to take some time, That's though, isn't it? Yeah, time, what's interesting yeah. as well, I think, is what he strived for in his life. In death, he's almost highlighting that in the sense... You know, it's quite amazing, I find, because he always look at people like, particularly like politicians, and it's not what they say, for me, it's how they say it and how they treat other people, and it's the way they act. Now... Perez had to make some tough decisions. He made decisions about the settlements, for example, that people didn't like. That was some at the people beginning. didn't. That was right. It at was the at the beginning. Yeah, right. But he still managed to engage people positively. I mean, the greatest example of that, I think, is the fact that Mahmoud Abbas is going to his funeral. Oh, I mean, I think that's remarkable. That that yeah. says so much about the man. There are other politicians and, and Israeli leaders that. We all know there would be no Palestinian representation at their funerals. But Perez was that kind of person. Mm. And I think in his death, it's, I, th- I find it quite remarkable that this is, this is such a big statement to the onlooking world 
that the Palestinian leader is going to pay his respects to the two-time prime minister and previous president of Israel. It's, I find that staggering. That's incredibly That's very... optimistic, isn't it? That, mm. that, that, that means that something could, could happen. happen. Absolutely. I, I was looking online, but I, they were saying, will anyone go from the Palestinians? I hadn't yet seen that yeah. a bus was going. Uh, that, that's really, really something special. Paris didn't have an easy life, really, because there was always that rivalry with Rabin. And what was tragic was after some special peace effort in 1995, for the first time, Rabin embraced him. A few hours or less than hours later, that was it. Rabin was assassinated. What you say, actually, or what Emma said about Perez and Rabin, I think is actually, in a way, it's very important here because, yes, I mean, they did have a rivalry for many decades and Perez himself as defence minister and as acting prime minister and then as prime minister, he had a kind of political rivalry, particularly with Rabin. And people actually joked at one of his election rallies when he said, am I a loser? And they shouted, yes, you are. (laughs) But later, you know, he really, he came in a way to transcend politics and transcend the political debate. He he was one of the true elder statesmen. He was one of these beacons of moral clarity in the world. And, you know, when you contrast him, for example, with certain very blustering, egotistical politicians, including a certain politician who's currently running for the American elections, (laughs) you notice the difference between that type of politician and Perez. Because he didn't live on sound bites, he didn't li- he didn't try and sort of live on clever verbal manoeuvres. He had a genuinely penetrating intellect and a moral clarity, which I just think is so absent in today's world. Yeah. Well, he was, in fact, the the first Israeli in a sense. I mean, he was there from the, from the very beginning right. in 1948. In fact, he went there before 1948, and. Everything he did from that moment onwards has great moral standing. Well, he was a, very much a believer. You could see that a lot of his morals were based on, on his Torah learning. Yeah. And that isn't necessarily the trend in Israel, specifically not within politics. Yes, that's, you're right. I, I read in one, one of the obituaries of him right. that he, he believed truthfully in the Ten Commandments. Mm. Oh, interesting. I didn't and, see and that in the obituary. he lived by the Ten Commandments. Interesting. And he was he was very very much I think ahead of his time in many issues. Absolutely. I mean, for example, I know there was a, a famous quote about him saying it's talking about what's stopping democracy in the Middle East are the husbands mm. because they're so used to their life that they lead that they don't <laughs> want women to have equality. Really. And until they get that, there won't be any peace in the Middle East. And for someone like that, someone who was born in what nineteen twenty three, you're right, years. it would have been yeah. <laughs> Born in 1923, and he's championing women's rights in the Middle East. But that was the the measure of the man. He stood alone on a lot of things, and people listened. But although there was rivalry with Rabin, they worked together exceedingly well, didn't they? Well, they they did, yes. And they were both much of the same cut. And it was so fitting that they got the Nobel Peace Prize together, although it was ironic that was with Arafat. And later, Mm. Arafat seemed to rescind from his position as a peacemaker. I heard on, on a radio programme just the other day a Palestinian saying that he had great admiration for him, for, for Paris, Paris yeah. but that in actual fact it didn't mean anything because they, the Israelis didn't really mean it. But they did, yeah. I think. I, I think there's no doubt about it. And the fact that there was an Israeli desire for peace, I mean, that was reflected very much in the elections. You know, it's been said before that when an Israeli leader is not seen to be 
doing very much for peace, they get ousted. If Israelis think there's a really good chance for peace and, and an Israeli leader isn't doing enough, they get ousted. So Netanyahu, for example, lost the election in 1999 to Barak yeah. because Netanyahu wasn't being seen to advance the peace process. Mm. So throughout the 1990s, there was a genuine mainstream Israeli belief that peace was possible. Yes, yeah, so and, and you know, accord, there's yeah. no doubt that that Perez and Rabin came to symbolise that. They were criticised at the time because they were seen to be giving too much to a Palestinian leadership that simply wasn't reciprocating, and that's a that's a fair point. That's a fair fact. That's a fair but fact. I still think that if you're looking really in a way to, to understand the failure of this. You, you would place the emphasis really more in a way on the on the Palestinian leadership. And if they're going to learn a lesson from Shimon Peres, it's that they they really have to be visionaries. They have to not go, go constantly hark back to what, what they think happened in the 1930s and 1940s. They have to really grapple with their people's future. And if they can do that and they cannot be trapped by the past, then there is a possibility for the future. Do you think that could happen? You know, what? I, I, I never say the word never in politics. I always think that if humans create a problem, they can they can ultimately solve it. I mean, that's something that Senator George Mitchell said. So I would I would never I would I wouldn't want to say that the Palestinians can never make a breakthrough, but it's going to be a long time coming. Yeah. So you don't at the present moment see the two nation the two state solution the two state solution that Perez saw so clearly Absolutely. is going to happen in the near future. It doesn't look like it. Unfortunately. I, I don't think in the near future. No. Do you not think so either, Emma? Um, probably not, unfortunately. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of settlers who would oppose it. But I think it's mainly, as Jeremy and maybe Adam suggested, it's the Palestinians are not really coming forward. Well, now, I, would, well, well I will, would like to say that there is always two sides of the story. And right. while it's easy for us to say it's the Palestinians, Israel have oh, made moves right as well. That I, I, I just for the you know sake of balance that... Israelis have done things oh, no, no, that not necessarily. Right. No, no, no. I mean, and the person I was thinking of who did play tribute, although he's more right-wing than Netanyahu, is uh, Bennett, who's the leader of what's called Jewish Home, and that's very right-wing. He still mm. played tribute. But, I mean, of course, there are loads of Israelis in the way of the two-state mm. solution. Mm. But had the Palestinians come forward more, maybe the more dedicated to peace Israelis might have been able to overrule the others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is definitely a nationalist, very religious bloc in Israel right. that would try and scupper sure. any attempt at peace. And I, you know, I would still argue that if there was a perception that a breakthrough was on the table, right. that bloc could be put to one side right. and another bloc in Israel could emerge, whether it was under Netanyahu or somebody else, that could really galvanise the move towards a permanent and just settlement in the Middle East. Right. I think it's there is a perception really among so many Israelis that you know that's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen because they offered a two-state solution on between 2000 and 2000, 2000 to 2001, and in 2008 it was rejected. Right. And if it's going to be rejected and you're going to have an intifada instead, well, what's what's the alternative? Where's right. the evidence here that making concessions to the Palestinians will actually result yeah. in something? And you don't think that sad. somewhere mm. there is a new Perez well, well, I don't, oh, that's very interesting. take over? But I mean, the sad thing also in Gaza, which was handed back to the Palestinians, and mm. Hamas took over, well, mm. what's peace there? But mm. could there be someone... I would, like to think there yeah. is. I would like to think oh, that it, the life he's led has yeah. inspired right, that's people to follow in his footsteps to a degree. I think it's going to be a great loss, though, because there is, I mean, I may be wrong, but I don't think there's quite the figurehead in Israel at the moment, like Shimon Peres, mm-hmm. that actually does have respect from both sides. 
Interesting. I, I, it does worry me a bit. I, I, the optimist in me, as I said earlier, the optimist does think maybe this will actually show to the world that, or show to both sides, look, there, there is a chance of getting on here. On the other hand, he's such a great loss. Right. And if there's no one to actually fill his boots, where do we go from here? I tell you something very interesting. Way back in 1948, when I was a little boy, I remember listening in a car radio on a particular day with a friend of mine, hearing about the new state of Israel. <laughs> and I've suddenly remembered that what was said was one of the people, one, two of the people that they mentioned were Perez and Ben-Gurion. Ben-Gurion was so right. Oh, was no, he so was right? Well, yeah, I thought he was in between. But... I didn't know he was so right. Well, anyway, that's, I suddenly recollect that. It's a sudden picture in my mind. Huh. And we were getting very excited because more and more of the countries in the world were recognising Israel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And let's hope that Perez, what he started, will go on growing and growing and growing. Absolutely. Absolutely agree. Well, yeah, anyway, indeed. thanks to our guests. I'm afraid that's where we have to leave it. Okay. But thank you very much indeed, authors and journalists, Emma Klein and Jeremy Abadi. And please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Well, that was the last schmooze for 5776. So I'd like <laughs> to take this moment to say thank you for all your contributions over the last year. And here's to another one filled with fascinating discussions and opinions. For me, Clive Roslin, Shana Tova. And just before our rabbinic thought for the week, it's time now to hear from Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips. Over the coming weeks, she'll be giving us some culinary ideas to try for the high holidays. And today, she's got a delicious recipe for Rosh Hashanah. I'm dying to hear what it is, Denise. A halva and pomegranate chocolate tort. And what I love about this recipe, it has all the flavours of the Jewish New Year. It is made with, and it takes about 40 minutes to make and an hour and a half to cook and serves 8 to 10 people. And what you need is 6 egg whites and 150 grams of golden caster sugar. And what you're going to do is firstly preheat your oven to 170, gas mark 3, and you need to grease and line a 22 centimeter loose base cake tin or 9 inch with baking parchment paper. So with your six egg whites, you're going to whisk those up so they're light and fluffy and then add your sugar. And please don't add your sugar until it is light and fluffy, otherwise it will be disaster. So light and fluffy egg whites, then you add your sugar and then you add the following ingredients. 125 grams of ground almonds, 500 grams of halva, coarsely chopped, a tablespoon of cocoa powder, 150 grams of pitted dates, roughly chopped, zest of two oranges, and 120 grams of dark chocolate, finely chopped. So this mixture is all combined together. Transfer it to your prepared cake tin and bake for an hour and 20 minutes until dry and firm to touch. So when your cake is lovely and cool. You now glaze it 
with a chocolate glaze made with 150 grams of dark chocolate and 100 mils. And I quite like to keep this power of, but you can use single cream. So it's 100 mils of either all pro cream or single cream. And melt this under a medium heat for about two to three minutes on the hob. And when it's combined together, just pour it over to a beautifully cake that's cool. And then finish it off, like all my recipes, the stylish way with some chopped pistachio nuts and pomegranate seeds and a few sprigs of mint. Wow. Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips there with a delicious recipe for Rosh Hashanah. And if you would like that or indeed any of Denise's other great recipes, then just head to her website, which is jewishcookery.com. Well, now it is time for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kinloss United Synagogue. The Unatane Tokhev prayer recalls the martyrdom of Rav Amnon of Mainz, who lived in Germany in the 11th century. It speaks of God examining the book of remembrances in which all deeds are written. One by one we are assessed. Hashem looks into each individual soul. We complete the book with the haunting refrain that on Rosh Hashanah it is written, and on Yom Kippur it is sealed. Kama ya'avrun v'kama yivre'un, mi yamutu how many will pass and how many will be created, who shall live and who shall die. Then follows a long and macabre list of possible fates. Water, fire, sword, wild beasts, famine, storm, thirst and plague, scarily disproportionate to the possibility that some will find peace, prosperity and preferment. I'm sure that for most of us the focus is on the doom. We may wonder at the righteous who perish, and we pray that we and our generation are spared such horrors. And as we pray, we see mi yichyeh, who shall live, quite simply as the opposite of mi yamut. We see life as the alternative to terrible death. But can it be that our solemn prayer is merely to avoid the suffering in the grave? Should our focus be survival or being spared? Do we really define our living as the opposite of dying? Mi yichyeh is a powerful positive. Mi yichyeh, who shall live, is not who is left alive, but who lives life. When we chant mi yichyeh, we should reflect on living lives of fulfillment and purpose, lives of meaning, lives of blessing. Of course we would welcome peace. Naturally we relish thoughts of prosperity and promotion. But what saps our enjoyment and diminishes our pleasure more than anything else in life is the feeling that we are inconsequential that we are no more than chains of self-replicating DNA, that to our friends or our families, we do not matter. The message of Unatane Tokhef is, we do matter. On the spiritual level, we affirm that we matter to Hashem, who assesses us soul by soul, one by one, and we pray for lives which are fulfilling. Mi Yichyeh is a powerful positive. God, grant us life. Hashem, let us live. Live to show love to those we care for. Live to celebrate their joy or to comfort and support them in their need. Let us live to enjoy the wonders of our world, the beauty of nature, and to contribute to its upkeep. Let us live to strengthen Israel. We are witnesses to the rebirth of our nation. May we be blessed to live as its builders. Hashem, let us live as emissaries of Torah, to give light to dark places, to live lives of value and worth, to raise our families and to strengthen our communities. This year, Hashem, Zochreinu v'kotveinu v'kotmenu, remember us, inscribe us, and seal us to live, to live, to live, to live our lives in this world and in the Book of Life.
Thank you very much to Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kinloss United Synagogue with our Thought for the Week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Professor Naomi Chazan, Melody Dadon, Simi Ben-Hur. Thanks also to the Schmooze team, Emma Klein and Jeremy Havadi, also Denise Phillips, and of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including those who helped produce this episode, Adam Bradley, Sue Greenberg and Bridget Grant. Don't forget, you can always listen to the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. From the whole team at The Jewish Views and The Jewish News, we wish you Shana Tovar, Happy and Healthy New Year, and we'll see you in the year 5777. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.